Hey, this is Alex Forbes. I'm a professional songwriter as well as a songwriting coach. And you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. I'm pleased to tell you that my Follow Your Dream handbook is now out and available. The handbook is a combination memoir of my musical journey and a step-by-step how-to book. Plus, it's got a whole bunch of very cool photos of my life and my career. I wrote the handbook as an extension of this podcast to help everyone to pursue and succeed at their dream, whatever it may be. The reviews have been just spectacular. It's been called inspiring, extremely helpful, highly readable, the guiding light, and a true literary treasure. So pick up the Follow Your Dream handbook today. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And today I have the great pleasure of having on the show Shelly Pikin, who calls herself a serial songwriter. I love that phrase. She has had so many pop hits and number ones and two Grammy nominations and TV and film placements. It's just unbelievable. And we're going to talk with her. And then in the second part of this interview, we're going to do what I like to call a song fest. And I love these things because who else does these on a podcast? So we're going to play a bunch of her songs and uh, we're going to have her talk about it. And I'll talk about it with her. And we're just going to have some fun doing it that way. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine in each episode and underneath this introduction. And you'll hear it again later at the end of the show is a song of mine called You Started Something. And it's from our album Trippin' by Project Grand Slam, my band. It went to number one on Billboard, so I'm very, very proud of that. But I picked this song mainly because although I don't really write pop hits, this was about as close to a pop song as I've ever written. So I wanted to kind of fit that in, given what it is that Shelly does for a living here. So anyway, Shelly, Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I like to ask all my guests, let's go back to the beginning. When you were a young girl, what was your dream? Was it to become a musician? Was it to become a songwriter? Gosh, you know, I was always writing songs, but I don't think I ever thought when I was little, I want to be a songwriter because I thought that every song that I heard on the radio was either what was written by whoever sang it. So I didn't think that there was room for somebody who wrote songs and didn't actually record them herself. So it never occurred to me that it was even a vocation until years later. So I don't know what I was dreaming back then. I was just happy to be a kid and and playing with my friends and you know, waking up every day and being alive. I guess 
you know, it would be good if I woke up that way now. <laughs> woke up every day and said, hey, th this is all we need is to be alive and, and be happy. But, well, you know. in the post-pandemic era, I think we're all happy to be alive and well. I think so. So I, I remember reading or hearing that kind of the first song that moved you was the Carpenter's version of Close to You. Is that correct? Yep. Why? What was it about that song? Well, I don't know what it was about that song. All I know, and that's how I feel about, you know, any song I hear that does the same thing to me now. I don't know what it is, but it is something magical and it's not always the same thing in every song that makes me pull over to the side of the road. But this song, I was, I remember clearly, I was on my bike and I was pedaling around the neighborhood and a car went by and the windows were down and that song was coming out. And I just thought my ears had gone to heaven. I just thought, <laughs> what is that sound? I was pedaling faster to follow the car. I didn't want the song to stop. I just wanted to hear it again and again and i didn't even know what it was it was like my first i call them eargasms <laughs> right it was like you just like you get that first one and you're like what was that and how can i get it again well it was a great song and karen carpenter had an amazing voice yeah she was an angel i mean said what happened there but you yes. know the number of hits that they had and what she was able and she played drums too that's a lot of people don't even know that Right. She did. And what was interesting about those times is that everybody sounded differently. You know, everybody sounded different. Everybody's voice was distinctive. Like Karen Carpenter did not sound like Roberta Flack, did not sound like Phoebe Snow, did not sound like Carol King, did not sound like Joni Mitchell. And that was the beauty of music without algorithms because everybody honored their own distinctiveness, their own voice, no pun intended. Whereas I feel like now we're all trying to sound like and catch that thing that has been discovered to, to work. When do you think that started? Because I agree with you. There's a sameness about vocalists or vocalization these days. When do you yeah. think it started? I start, I think it started with digital streaming and social media. And, you know, when songs started, when, when streaming was with interactive streaming, they can track everything that everybody who streams is playing, whatever they choose. And so they see, oh, enough people are picking this. Well, we want more of this so that we get more listeners and more activity and more subscribes. And it sort of helps their business model, but it really doesn't help us as music lovers. I think it's it's an injustice. I'm with you. We're not getting all the the spectrum of what is out there and all the alternatives and all the colors of everything. We're getting a lot of sameness, especially on like pop radio. Indie is a little different, but if, even within the indie genre, you can hear that artists are trying to recreate a sound or a vibe that is trending. Well, you know, way back in the day when FM radio first started, for example, it was free form. All the disc jockeys could play anything that they wanted. And you right. had such variety. It was, it was mm -hmm. wonderful. And then 
came the gatekeepers. And in my opinion, that ruined radio in so many respects, even though AM radio was a top 40 kind of thing, but it was all hit oriented. And, you know, all the groups in the 60s and the 70s, like you said, they were all distinctive. They were Mm -hmm. all different. And then there was this homogenization. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I think sometimes I think, gosh, would would Elton John have made it today? Would Bob Dylan have have been able, you know, would he get a golden ticket on American Idol when American Idol was, I mean. He wouldn't I, get past I, the auditions. Are you right. There's not enough melisma. And think of all that music we would have missed. It's just, but now I'm sounding very old school and, you know, I hear myself, you know, and I, I really listen to a lot of current music too. And I appreciate it. And I, I heart the songs I like when I, download a, um, a playlist and then I go back and I listen to all the albums and I I love music now but it's different it's not as it doesn't stay with me for a lifetime it makes me happy for the three minutes I'm listening to it and there's so much of it and there there's there's so much choice and so much to listen to that we don't become addicted to one album that we play over and over and over again. Well, that's true. And yeah. we used to do that, right? Yeah. We used to play albums over and over and over right, again. Right, because it's all we could afford. <laughs> you know, it but it was also very cool. Album. It was very cool to put, you know, the needle on yeah, the album. It was an event. Yes. And you had the second side that you could listen to. Anyway, those days are long gone. So tell me, how did you become a professional songwriter? So I went to college for something completely different. And every day after classes, I would go up to the um, the music building. And it was like my own little secret. Nobody knew where I was going. And I'd lock myself in a, I'd sequester myself in a cubicle with a piano. And I'd write songs like I always did since I was a kid. And it was sort of like my therapy. It was, it was a, the way I expressed myself. It was this little secret affliction, <laughs> I don't know what to call it. And I got out of school. I came back to New York where I grew up. I looked for a job in the area of my studies, which was in the fashion business. And I really didn't, I wasn't bonding with the culture. And um, so I decided not to, not to go, not to do it if it was something I was going to do every day for the rest of my life in a culture I didn't love. I mean, I loved it in theory. I loved the beauty of a garment. I loved designing and making a garment. I just didn't love being around the business. And so I became a waitress um, at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in New York. It was a new structure that stuck out over the street. They called it the Sun Garden at the time, and it's still there. And they hired 13 waitresses for the room, and I was one of them. And I did that for four years while I discovered that there were other songwriters in New York who weren't necessarily on the radio singing the songs that they wrote. I found them through ads in newspapers and where they were meeting and where they were convening and I would get myself there and I felt like oh my god this is my tribe I never even knew they existed and we'd play songs for each other and one of them is where I met Alex Forbes who was also on your podcast and she was my first collaboration 
And I started, I was introduced to Bleecker Street in the village where you could show up on a Wednesday night and play for free for 20 minutes and work out your set and get to know what you do better and what people react to. And I found this community who did what I wanted to do, which was write songs that I could get other people to record. I mean, I would have loved to be signed as an artist myself, and I dappled with that on occasion, but this road that led to one simple song being recorded, which was an album cut, not a single, on a, a record that wound up selling three million copies worldwide, I discovered that for every nine cents I made, for every album that sold, if you do the math, I didn't co-write it with anybody and I didn't publish it with anybody, it was all mine. That math was really remarkable because I could certainly earn a living as a songwriter with one or two of these a year. And I didn't even have to have a hit song on the radio. It was just an album cut. And which song was that? What are you referring to? It was to? a song called Carry Your Heart. And it was on Taylor Dane's album in the 80s. And that was possible because of physical sales. For every physical sale, there was a nine cent royalty rate for every song, every track on the record. And I continued trying to get songs placed. And at the time, for many reasons that I actually talk about in my book, Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, it was, it was more likely that you could make a living out of it because record labels were soliciting songs. They wanted you to send them songs. They depended on songs. And there's a lot of reasons why that has changed. But because that was so, if you got on five, six albums a year that went gold at least, which was conservative back then, but think about it now, that would be amazing. Um, you could pay your rent in the city. You could have a share in Fire Island. You could go out for sushi twice a week <laughs> and live a very nice life. And you wouldn't have to have a second job. But that's not possible right now. The yeah. whole middle class has gone digital delivery that's just wiped that out. But I'm getting onto tangents here. That's how I became a professional songwriter. One recording was sort of my calling card. Once I had that, I was able to call labels and say, I'm already in, I've already started, I already had a song recorded, and they took you more seriously, and they took a meeting and they listened to more songs. That's great. It's uh, it's wonderful to hear those kinds of stories. And, you know, as you were saying about the reimbursement rate in the old days, I'm starting to think about what the reimbursement rate is now for streaming. And people don't understand, you know, something like Spotify has a market value of about $50 billion, but what they pay the artists is so microscopic, you need a magnifying mm -hmm. glass to basically see it. Right. You know, I get reimbursed for my stuff at like 0.004 cents per stream. And so 
if if you have a million streams, I mean that sounds like a lot. A, a million people are streaming your song, and yet for an artist that represents about three thousand dollars or so. So it's a very yeah, different world. Well, and an artist is not necessarily the songwriter. So on a million streams, they're after Spotify or Apple take their cut, there's about $5,000 left and 4,800 of that go to the master owner, which is the label, or maybe a producer or you if you own the master, but usually not. So 4,800 go to the master owner and the artist and $200 goes to the songwriter and publisher where you used to sell a million albums. And if you wrote the whole song and published the whole song, it was close to a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. It's a different so. world. Okay. It is what it is. We can't fight and change city hall, right? It is what it is. That's what no, I no, tell no, everybody. Actually we can fight. And I do a lot of fighting and advocating with Sona songwriters of North America and uh -huh. anybody who's a serious songwriter or who wants to be for a living should check out wearesona.com because we've actually changed a lot of legislation. And is it ever going to go back to physical copies? Perhaps not, but we can earn a larger share of that pie. And we are because of the work we've done. So Good. We can fight City Hall. We're doing it every day. I'm behind you 100%. Right. <laughs> All right. Let's move to the second part of this interview, which I look forward to, which is what I call a song fest. And what we're going to do is I've got a few of Shelley's more famous songs kind of lined up here. And we're going to play them underneath. And uh, then I'm going to ask her to talk about them. Tell us the, the backstory, if you will, because I think people are really interested in that. Sure. So the first one that is now starting underneath is a big hit that you had with uh, Christina Aguilera, What a Girl Wants. about that so you know what a girl wants is a song that i wrote with Guy roche it was based off of some words i scribbled on a receipt the day before we got together for our uh, co-write and i think that they were thoughts about my boy my then boyfriend now husband of 20 plus years giving me a lot of room and a lot of space when i was trying to get the courage to move from New York to Los Angeles to be with him. And it was sort of a tribute to that freedom he gave me to make up my mind. And he was just playing this vibe on the piano when I walked into the studio that day. And I thought, you know, this would kind of 
fit with be a good marriage for those words and I fished them out and we started playing around with it and you know sometimes you just stumble upon something and we came up with that hook but actually it was what a girl needs it was the needs first it was what a girl needs what a girl wants and um we must have pitched it about 25 times it was passed on 25 times and then you know, sometimes it's just about the right song being in the right place at the right time. And Ron Fair heard it. He was working with Christina and he said, I really like this. Could you switch the needs and the wants? <laughs> and I said, why? You know, that wrecks my whole rhyme scheme. And he said, because wants is way more sexy than needs. And you've got the alliteration in the what and the wants right up front. And I thought he was a little crazy. But, you know, years later, I look back and I think he was right. And not just because the song was number one, um, was the number, the first number one song of this whole millennium, but I think aesthetically he was right about that. And I thank him forever. Well, it worked. So yeah. that's the, the name of the game. Okay. Yep. Second song here. Another one, I believe by uh, Christina Aguilera. Come on over. about that yeah so come on over i always give credit to the original writers because i was not in the room when that song was conceived i was like a foster parent because i think the the song was released in certain territories on the album but ron wanted to release it as a single and he felt that the lyrics on the verses could be stronger i don't even know if i necessarily agreed with him but if I, but if i had said that he would have gone on to somebody else to do it. And I didn't want him to go on to somebody else to do it. And I thought, well, I think these lyrics are really good the way they are, but can I make them better? Let me try. And so I did. And he liked them better and she re-recorded it. And that is the version that came out on the single. So the, the lyrics on the verses on the single version are actually different than the version on the album, It Is Not Your Imagination. Oh, isn't that interesting? So were you in the studio with Christina Aguilera when she was doing this, or how did that work? No, sadly. I've met her on a lot of occasions. I've went backstage. Um, in fact, she's coming to the Hollywood Bowl next month, and I'm going to try to get in there to give her a hug. But, you know, these, these were times, you know, I should have pushed to be in the studio while it was being recorded, but I didn't. And, you know, maybe it was thought that if the songwriters were there, it would be too much of a distraction. I don't know. When I think back, I should have pushed because it would have been 
a wonderful memory to be there when it was going down. I was busy. I was writing other songs. <laughs> Nobody knew. Nobody knew. I was in the studio with Britney Spears. I never took a picture. I didn't even think. Plus, you know, when you're living in the moment, I mean, when What a Girl Wants was being recorded, we didn't have iPhones. Nobody was taking, nobody was documenting every second of their life. But you know what, Robert? Even now, I'll be in the studio with somebody and I'll come home and think, God, I didn't take a goddamn picture. <laughs> because, and, and, and part of me is proud of that. I think, you know what? I'm not always thinking about taking, starting to document your life takes you out of living it. You're so obsessed with getting the right angle and did I look good and did she look good and what was the background? It's like you, it, it's just, it's disruptive. But you know, there's another reason I'm asking this question and that's because when I write and I've written about a hundred songs at this point and most of them now are vocals and I write for my band and I, my band has a singer and what I find is that when we go into the studio to record as the writer, it's helpful for me to be able to interpret the song to the singer so that she knows what it is that I was trying to accomplish in the song. And we kind of work together to figure out what the feel would be. Whereas in the method that you just described, which I think is probably the more usual method, you know, this, you kind of give up the song to the producer and the artist and they kind of take their own spin on it. Just a different way of looking at things. But you're in the band too, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if I were in the band, I would feel the same way, but I feel that singers who are truly artists have a good sense of interpreting a song the way they feel it. And you know what? Sometimes I've been surprised at their approach and delighted by their approach. Sometimes they've performed a song in a way that I never considered was my treatment. So I'm okay with, if I was in the studio with her, I never would have said, excuse me, Christina, can you sing it this way? Ever. She might've said, you know what? Screw you. Well, you're right. It's a different relationship when you're writing for somebody like that. And I never would tell my singer, sing it like this. I would simply say, you know, I've, I've written it with this idea in mind. Why don't you think about this as you're singing it? That kind of thing. I try and guide them a little bit. It's a demo? No, no. I'm talking about an actual, you know, re recorded, releasable track. But I understand it's a completely different thing when you're writing a song for somebody as a songwriter, as opposed to what I'm doing, writing it for a singer in my band. Just a different in perspective, that's all. Okay, next song that we're going to play is the one that you wrote for Meredith Brooks called Bitch, and it was your first Grammy nomination. I hate the world today You're so good to me, I know, but I can't change Tried to tell you, but you look at me like maybe I'm an angel underneath Innocent and sweet Yesterday I cried You must have been relieved to see the softer side I can understand how you'd be so confused I don't envy you I'm a little bit of everything 
us about that and how it felt to get a Grammy nomination. Right. Well, I did not write it for Meredith. I wrote it with her. Okay. And I, I really feel like, you know, you know, she and I had, in fact, is it her birthday today? Let's see. No, two more days. Um, she and I had a lot in common and it's wonderful when you work with an artist that you share common ground with because you don't feel like either one of you are putting words in each other's mouth. You're really writing about something that you both feel viscerally. And uh, she came over one day, she put a guitar in her lap and we were just, you know, batting it back and forth, her line, my line, her line, my line. And she left that day. We didn't have the sum up line, uh, which was, you wouldn't want it any other way or I wouldn't want it any other way. We didn't know how to make the hook, make the chorus come full circle. It was very frustrating. And on her way home, she called it in and told me what she thought it should be, which was that line that it was. And honestly, I thought, no, 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 it doesn't rhyme with anything. I don't really get it. I'm not sure, but she was sure. And she went off to the studio that very same day and recorded a demo with that line. And they took the demo. She and her um, manager, Lori Levy, took it to Interscope where she was signed with um, a development deal. And they actually passed on it. And so she and Lori went over to Capitol and she got signed by Perry Watts Russell on the spot with that song and that last line. And the rest is kind of history. And what about the Grammy nomination? I was so busy that year. I had just had a baby and Meredith kept calling going, I know we're going to get nominated. I know it. I know it. it's going to be great. And I, I just wasn't even hearing her. I, I think I didn't want to get invested in that fantasy. And, you know, I was breastfeeding and running. I had like a, a, a baby and, there was not a lot of internet back then. I remember the day the, the Grammys were announced, she called me and she said, you know, go to the driveway and get your newspaper if you get one delivered. And we did. And it was, you know, right there in, in, in black and white print. And um, it was pretty amazing. You know, it wasn't a time when you were promoting or campaigning for something you wrote on social media. I mean, my book, got nominated for a best spoken word audiobook. And I think it deserved to be in the category, but I campaigned for it. I made people aware that it existed and they should consider it. And here's why. Back then it was just, you know, did the people vote for it? And you weren't out there asking them to consider it. So it was more out of the blue and you didn't hang as much hope on it because you weren't as invested with your efforts to make it happen. 
So it was pretty amazing. You know, Robert, I survived on album cuts for 10 years, for the first 10 years of my career. And everybody, it felt like everybody around me, friends and, and colleagues, everybody was having hits except for me. I think the universe made me wait a really long time. And I think that it did that because when I finally got it, I really, really appreciated it. And I'm grateful because over those 10 years, I worked really hard at my craft and I got better at it. So 30 years later, I'm still making a living. I think if you have success too soon out of luck or manifestation or because you really wrote a great song, if it happens too soon, you won't have done the work that it takes to get better perhaps, and you might not have as much longevity. So I don't know if I am simply rationalizing on the reason why it took so long or why it's good that things take so long. I do believe that that's why I'm still here. So Shelly, you know, this is the Follow Your Dream podcast. And it's a podcast for people out there that Everybody has a dream, I believe. Some people are no longer in touch with their dream, but everybody at one time or another had a dream. And so many people never get to pursue, much less succeed at their dream. But I like to ask my guests like you who are successful, what advice would you give for the dreamers out there? A dreamer of of anything or a dreamer in the music business? Whatever you decide. Well... I'd say if you've got dreams about the music business, you better have no other choice because it's it's very competitive. And if there is something else that you think you would love to do, I would say consider pursuing that. That said, if you have no choice and this is what you want to do, then put one foot in front of the other and find your own path. If you don't take no for an answer and you believe in it without any doubt, it's very alchemistic, it will happen, and it's extremely rewarding. I suggest to everybody to read the book called The Alchemist because it explains why in a beautiful story, how the universe conspires with you to make something happen when you have no doubt that it will. And I guess that applies to all dreams as well. I think once you give up on your dreams, life isn't as exciting when you don't have stuff to look forward to. So you gotta just keep keep dreaming it. <laughs> I wanna thank you so much, Shelly, for being on this podcast. My pleasure, we did it. Shelly Pikin, the serial songwriter. I love that phrase. Yeah, my friend, a good friend at the time, Jesse Nash, actually came up with that. And um, I was thinking, the mad songwriter, the, the endless songwriter. And he said, you're serial. And I said, bingo. <laughs> That's it. You're serial is what you are. That's yes. it. It's a great name. Here are the key takeaways from my interview with Shelly Pikin. If your dream is the music business, you better have no other choice because it's so darn competitive. 
And if you have no other choice, then find your own path and never, ever take no for an answer. So at this point in the show, we're going to listen again to the song that I feature of mine that I've mentioned at the beginning of this episode called You Started Something. And uh, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode. And we will see you next episode of the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Oh,